Matthew 5. I'm going to read verse 21 and then we'll read verse 22 together. The Bible says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Together. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. If you look at the beginning of verse 21, you see those words, Ye have heard. And then if you look at the beginning of verse 22, the Bible says, But I say unto you. Uh, God here is, or Jesus rather, is going to lay out for us a series of Ye have herds, but I say unto you, the command of Christ will highlight today, highlights again that Jesus Christ is to be the Lord of our life. Ye have heard, but I say unto you is the title of our sermon this morning. Let's pray. God, as we look at these, uh, there are six of these, I believe, in Matthew 5. As we look at these and we understand the importance of living a life dictated not by the law, but by grace. Lord God, may we be uh, grace-driven Christians, as that's laid out very clearly in the preaching this morning. May each heart and mind be open. And Lord God, give us ears to hear, hearts that understand, and lives that go forth and put into practice. May we not just hear, but may we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Can you, can you get my lapel mic for me? I appreciate that. What do you think of when you hear the term last will and testament? Last will and testament. Hang on, it's my fault, not his. Let me get this turned on. Okay, I think we're good. Thank you. Last will and testament. Um, do you think of money? Amen. Last will and testament usually involves some sort of inheritance, right? Where someone lays that out. Last will and testament. Uh, it's likely you think of someone who has formalized their desires as it pertains to their belongings and their wealth after they have deceased. So when it comes to the distribution of inheritance, we look to the last will and testament. Now, uh, someone passes and we mourn their loss and then we pull out that last will and testament and we figure out how they wanted their wealth. Distributed. Now, when I die, I hope to leave my kids wealth. Some people, when they die, their last will in testament isn't the distribution of wealth. It is the distribution of debt. All right. You get to pay this bill and you get to pay that bill. That was a joke. You can laugh. OK, um, uh, but um, the uh, distribution of, of 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 that inheritance. Now, when it comes to the distribution of inheritance, we look to that last will in testament it is, listen now, it is sort of a covenant that is made between the living and the dead. The living and the dead. Now, the Bible is composed of two sections known as the Old and the New. The Old what? And the New. All right. All of it fits together. The Old and New fit together to make a complete picture of God's covenant with his prized creation, and that is us. The Old Testament is the law of God. The New Testament is the grace of God. Say that with me. The Old Testament is the law, and the New Testament is the grace of 
Very good. So they fit together beautifully and they make that complete picture. Now, um, uh, you could not know the depth and wealth of God's great grace if you did not first know the rigidity of God's law. I'm going to teach you some Bible doctrine here. I need you to pay attention on purpose. I will keep your attention uh, uh, myself when we get into the sermon, but I need your attention as I lay this out. Dial in and give me your attention here. So, uh, we could not know the depth and wealth of God's great grace if we did not first know the rigidity of God's law. And you could not know the rigidity of God's law if you did not know the depth and wealth of God's great grace. So, the Old Testament shows you and me how that we fall short of what it is that God expects. God expects us to hold to a moral standard. Uh, We find the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And maybe you've never done any of those. But how about we back up to the beginning. uh, 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 We're to put the Lord first. And we're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And uh, we are to honor our father and our mother. How about this one? Thou shalt not bear false witness. How many times a a week do we break that one? We say something that isn't true. How about this one? Thou shalt not covet. How many times a week do we look at something that someone else has or something that we do not have or we walk through a store and touch something that we can't afford to buy or we see something that comes up on our phone that we wish we had or we hear somebody taking a vacation that we can't take or uh, we uh, we have these uh, thoughts and feelings of covetousness. The Old Testament, the law, shows us how that we fall short of God's expectation that we are perfect, the New Testament comes along and makes up the gap through the gift of God's great grace, understood most richly through what Jesus Christ did to pay off the penalty of our sin on the cross. So, for a moment here, I would like to contrast for you the Old Testament with the New Testament, okay? We get this Old Covenant from Moses that's uh, given uh, by God through the hand of Moses. The New Testament comes by God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also God. So, Old Testament, Moses. New Testament, Christ. The Old Testament highlights law. The New Testament highlights grace. The Old Testament lays out for us our condemnation. The New Testament lays out for us our coronation. The Old Testament is incomplete. The New Testament comes along and is complete. The Old Testament is actions-centric. Thou shalt not kill. The New Testament is attitude-centric. Thou shalt not uh, be angry against thy brother. The Old Testament is outward-compliant. The New Testament demands that we be inward Compliant. So the Old Testament says that Jehovah God was full of two things, mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. Why? Why? Because if God would have enforced every consequence deserved upon mankind, He would have wiped us off the face of the earth and we would not be here. The only reason why you and I are able to live and breathe air is because God daily shows us His mercy even though we break His law. Think about back to the Garden of Eden where the Lord told Adam, the day that ye eat that fruit, ye shall surely die. Now, did Adam die the day he ate that fruit? 
Well, his soul died that day, but God could have wiped him and Eve off the planet and sent them to hell and just been done with it and started over or not done anything else. But instead, he showed mercy. He showed mercy. Do you understand that every day that you are not in hell is a good day? Every day that you... Now you say, well, why does God allow me to suffer with this or with that? Every day that you are not in hell is God's mercy being rained down upon you. But mercy is not where it stops. The Old Testament was Jehovah God showing mercy and truth. The New Testament comes along and John chapter 1 tells us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It says this, that He was full of grace and truth. Now you see a shift from mercy and truth over to grace and truth. And if you think that that's uh, the same thing, just said the same way, then my friend, you need to understand that grace is not just the avoiding of punishment. Grace is the pouring on of blessing upon you. The law dictates that you die and that you suffer an eternity in hell, separated from God for your sin. Mercy says, I'll cut you some slack and I'm not going to send you directly to hell. Grace says, not only am I not going to send you to hell, I'm going to pour on you the unmerited, undeserved riches of God all over you. The law says, thou shalt not bear false witness. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. But mercy says, I'll spare you from death and I'll give you a chance at life. Grace comes in behind and says, I'll make you a joint heir to Christ. And I'll promise you the riches of the eternal kingdom in spite of your wretched sin. Jesus came into this earth and He was grace and truth embodied. He was not just grace embodied. He was not just truth embodied. He was both. He did not throw out the Old Testament law and say, we don't need this anymore. No. The Old Covenant was a giant arrow pointing to the New Covenant. And the New Covenant comes along and completes the Old Covenant. Now watch this now. God made a covenant with Adam that, uh, yes, uh, the serpent has bruised your heel. One day, uh, the woman will crush his head. How was the Adamic covenant fulfilled? Jesus Christ was born and He died on the cross and He crushed the serpent's head. How about Abraham? The Abrahamic covenant. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, through you will all the families of the earth, the nations of the earth be blessed. Uh, how was the Abrahamic covenant or testament fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and through Him all nations of the world can be saved. How about the Davidic covenant or the Mosaic covenant? All the same, Jesus Christ is the completion of that covenant. Watch this. Jesus did not come along to destroy the old covenant. He came along to complete it. Look at Matthew 5. Look at verse number 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17. Look what Jesus says here. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. Speaking of the Old Testament. I am not come to destroy. What's the rest of that verse say? But to fulfill. Jesus was teaching radical grace to people who were wrapped up heavily into keeping the law. They found their moral worth in how well they could follow the Mosaic Law. How well they could behave themselves. How well, uh, how much better than they were than someone else. Jesus understood that all humanity is born under a condemnation. And as a result, we are hopeless. We could go around the room this morning and we could probably try and figure out 
through a series of questions and evaluations, who in here is the least of the sinners among us, down to who is the greatest of the sinners among us. And we could all get in a line from the person who's committed the least amount of sin uh, uh, per day in their life, down to who's committed the most sin and the most egregious sins. But can I tell you that it doesn't really matter because we're all so broken and we're all so sinful. We all deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. Grace comes along and says, you're all under the same condemnation, but I'm going to lift the condemnation and I'm going to give you a home promised in heaven. Listen, it is grace and grace alone that saves us. It is because of God's great grace that we have the opportunity to place our faith in it for salvation. You see, if grace was taken off the table, there would be nothing for you to believe in. It is His grace that saves us. It is His grace that sanctifies us. It is His grace that allows our relationship with God to exist. It is imperative that grace be the foundation of our interpersonal relationships. It is imperative that grace dictate our relationships. Now listen, church. Grace comes in and raises the standard of behavior. Grace comes along and dictates a much higher level of behavior than does the law. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down at the top of your outline. Write this down. Grace demands a higher standard than the law requires. Write that down. Grace demands a higher standard than the law requires. It's up on the screen if you need help. Grace demands a higher standard than the law requires. God, uh, the law says, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, don't even look with lust. The law says, hey, don't kill. Jesus says, don't even be angry at your brother without a cause. The law says, don't swear on your own head or on Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus says, hey, let your yeas be yeas and let your nays be nays. The law says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. The law says, love your uh, uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you and persecute you and vilely use you. He says, uh, the standard has been raised. Why? Because when I am saved by God's grace and I have the, those unmerited, undeserved riches poured down on top of my head and I live under the fountain of God's grace, I ought to turn around and then give it to everyone that I know. That ought to be how I live. Not to look down on people, not to hate on people, but rather to live my life at a much higher standard. Uh, Unfortunately today, leave that up there for me. Unfortunately today, we live in an era where there are churches out there that claim to be grace-based churches. Here's the problem. They have grace, but they've taken truth and they've thrown it out. And I'm here to tell you that if you are walking in grace, then your lifestyle has not gone, rather, uh, your holiness level has not gone down. Instead, it has been raised up higher. 
Now, the way you treat other people is you cut them some slack while you hold yourself to a much higher plane. And here at White Oak Baptist Church, we are going to highlight holy Christian living, and we are never going to not highlight in that. And you know what? If there are people out there that want to judge our church because we highlight and, and put an emphasis on living holy, well, my friend, holy living is not an Old Testament concept. Peter said that we are to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And so we are to let grace raise that standard. It demands a higher standard than the law requires. Let's look at three truths together this morning as we consider these commands of Christ centered around these words. Ye have heard that it hath been said. Jesus comes along and says, but I say unto you. Let's look at these together in context of great grace. Number one, notice grace's character. Grace's Character. I'm going to give you an A and a B below each point here. Notice letter A, a heart that is true. A heart that is true. Look with me there at Matthew chapter 5. When I say true, what I mean is a heart that is honest and integritous, a heart that is upright, a heart that is true. The law focuses on actions that are true or right toward others, but Jesus goes below the surface He goes past the actions and down into the heart where your attitude is. Look at Matthew 5, look at verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. The law says, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus comes along and says, do not be angry with your brother or spout off at the mouth, calling him an idiot or a fool. Someone who lets grace win the day in their heart is someone who does not allow any room for an angry spirit. There is no room for an angry spirit. Hey, not only are we not going to kill someone, we're going to dig down to the root of murder and we're going to address bitterness and hatred and anger and we're going to deal with that directly. But I uh, look with me at Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse number 28. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. Uh, 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 again, uh, the standard has been raised because we're living under grace and truth. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And ladies, the inverse of this verse is also true, that whosoever looketh on a man to lust after him hath committed adultery with him already in her heart. Someone who allows grace to take over their heart is not only concerned with physical fidelity to his wife or to to the spouse, but also, listen now, listen, Emotional faithfulness. Amen. We're committed to that emotional faithfulness. Physical adultery does not just happen. You don't have a man who's in love with his wife, whose mind is right, wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm just going to go sleep with someone else. Amen. That doesn't happen. You see, long before physical adultery takes place, there is a matter of the heart that's wrong. There is a lust an untoward desire that takes place in somebody's heart. And Jesus says, under grace, we're not just addressing the actions. We're getting down to who you are in your heart. Who you are in your heart. Hey, it's great that you've never killed anybody. Have you ever been angry at your brother without a cause? Have you ever uh, 
Have you ever had a lustful thought toward someone of the other gender? And by the way, a man looks at a woman who's dressed inappropriately and he may stare too long or some men get wrapped up in looking at things on a device they shouldn't be looking at. What I find with women is that their lust in this area, it takes a different shape. Maybe they're into erotic novels that they read. A lot of women get wrapped up in that stuff. Or maybe they look at another man across church or another man in their life and they say, I wish my husband was like him. You know, that's, that's lust. That, that, that you're guilty of lust. Um, the Bible goes past the action and it looks at the heart. Look at Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said of, by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his, it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Someone who operates by grace does not need to swear on anything. Why? Because they are people of integrity. It ought to be that if someone looks at you and says, I'm going to be here at this day and this time, and you show up to meet them there, that they're there. Amen? Amen. It ought to be that you don't need to say, I swear it, I swear it. Hey, you won't believe what happened to me at work. Yeah, I don't believe you. No, I swear upon my own head. I swear upon my mother's grave. The worst is when someone swears to... You know what I'm trying to say. You see, if you're a man or woman of integrity, deep down in your heart, you have a heart that is true. People know your integrity. People believe your word because your word is good. Your word is honest. You see, grace raises the standard. Grace demands a higher standard. Grace demands that we have character. Grace demands a heart that is true. Letter B. Grace demands a heart that is tender. That is tender. Look with me at Matthew 5. Look at verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. Don't fight against evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go to a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So what does the law say? The law says when someone does you wrong, seek vengeance! Hey, someone wrongs you, you can wrong them back as long as it's not overdoing it. It's equal with them. Give it back. Hey, someone blackens your eye, then you blacken their eye. Someone punches you in the mouth and knocks a tooth out, well, then you get to go after their tooth also. Those operating under the law, uh, they have a I get mad and get even attitude. One of the one of the funniest things to me is when someone says, I don't get mad, I get even. You know what? If you're getting even, you are mad, okay? <laughs> Let's not lie to ourselves here, right? Um, 
It, you might not be uh, uh, hot-blooded in your getting even. You might be cold-blooded in your getting even. But uh, that getting even idea deals with vengeance, does it not? And vengeance belongs to who, church? Belongs to the Lord. So those operating under the law, they look to get mad and even. Those operating under grace understand that the world is full of broken people. So instead of attacking back, what are we to do? We're to turn the other cheek. You humbly give someone more of you than is required while they are trying to wrong you. They say, Pastor, that's crazy. Do you understand that this idea of going the second mile, we hear that phrase, go the second mile. That comes here out of uh, Matthew 5, uh, where we read where it says in verse 41, Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Uh, there was uh, on the outskirts of every uh, Jewish city, there was a marker, a mile marker, one mile marker. And uh, if you lived in that Jewish city and you were a man, a Roman soldier could require that you carry their pack, their backpack, and um, uh, or their load, and you were required to stop whatever you were doing, no matter how inconvenient it was, and carry that out a mile, and then you could lay it down or give it back to the soldier and head back into town. And can you imagine that? Having somebody walk up to you, you're having a bad day, your body's sore, you're tired, or you're busy, you're in the middle of something, you just don't have any margin of time, and a soldier walks up to you and says, I need you to carry this a mile. And he doesn't care that it's totally inconveniencing and uprooting your day. You have to do it. Jesus said, don't just carry it a mile. Go two miles. He said, someone reaches up in anger and slaps you in the face. Don't slap them back. Have a heart that is tender. Turn the other cheek. Jesus says here, hey, someone maligns you, takes advantage of you, sues you at the law unfairly to take away your coat. Give him your cloak also. A heart that is tender. Sometimes I'll walk into the kitchen and my wife is getting ready to uh, cook a roast or cook a big piece of meat and she's got this hammer out. You ever see that hammer? How many of you ladies like to use the hammer? Right? Listen, use it on the meat, not on your husband. Amen? It's, uh, don't, don't turn and hit him with that, alright? That wooden hammer. And pow, 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 pow. You know what you're doing? You are tenderizing that meat. Tenderizing that meat. Sometimes, when God allows people to mistreat you, you can either toughen up or you can get more tender. And I see that people move in one of two directions. Write this down. To be a good Christian, you need two things. Thick skin and a tender heart. You need thick skin and you need a tender heart. Oh, both those things are so important. Some of you are way too sensitive. Well, a pastor said this on Sunday. It hurt my feelings. Pastor didn't shake my hand. Such and such sat in my seat. They know I like to sit there. Why did such and such have to double park? I always park in that spot. Now I've got to... Will you knock it off? All right? I would tell you to grow up, but that wouldn't be nice. So I'll just tell you, you know, get some thick skin. Quit letting everything offend you. You know, it used to be that we would come to church and sit in a pew 
not so that the pa- not so that we could analyze the pastor and critique him, but so that the pastor could preach the truth that would critique us. And a lot of people come to church to cr- to criticize and critique the pastor. If I had a dollar for every time someone has sat at their lunch table and uh, picked my sermon apart or picked me apart, you know, I'd probably be able to buy a private island somewhere. If I had if I had $100 for every time someone has inadvertently taken me apart on Facebook, you know, I could at least go buy a new car. Um, you say, Pastor, does that stuff bother you? I, I mean, I'm a human. It bothers me a little bit, but I get it's part of the it's part of my job. You know what people do? People complain. That's what I do in my nature. That's what you do in your nature. And so if someone's complaining about me, that just means they're being human. You know what? If I'm going to let that hurt me, that's because I have a pride problem. Now, you shouldn't do it, right? But I understand it's going to happen. Well, I can't believe such and such won't, you know, interact with me on Facebook. Okay. All right. Whatever. Such and such never likes my posts. They like everybody else's posts. I don't think they like me very much. Get some thick skin. Maintain a tender heart. Amen? Amen. I think such and such blocked me on Facebook. Well, maybe you should just get off Facebook. Amen? Amen. How many of you tried to send me a friend request? (laughs) Good luck. I'm not on there. Amen? Thick skin and a tender heart. Look at Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Wow. Love your enemies. That doesn't mean tolerate your enemies. It means love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. While they're shouting curses about you, you're to be shouting blessings their direction. Do good to them that hate you. That sounds like you have to be proactive. Doing good their direction. Pray for... I'll pray for them, all right. No, we're praying for them. We're not praying against them. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, Pastor, how do you love your enemies? I'm going to, I'm going to share with you a formula that I follow that God has given me to help me love my enemies. If you have a, a blank piece of paper somewhere, you're not going to be able to write all this down on that back of that outline. But if you have a blank piece of paper somewhere, you want to take out your phone and try to type up some version of this, I welcome you to do that. It's wordy, so you're going to have to find a way to simplify it. Uh, but when someone attacks me, I follow a very simple formula. And I think if you can just comprehend the formula and then put it into practice, you'll be blessed. Um, number one, is their accusation correct? Did I do something wrong in their direction? So if so, then I humbly apologize. I humbly apologize. So, you know, someone has uh, gotten cold in my direction. I'm not going to just, you know, play the passive-aggressive game. I'm going to go to them. Hey, are we good? 
Maybe I know what I did. Maybe I don't know what I did. If I know what I did, I'm going to walk up to him and say, hey, I'm sorry. You know? Let's say I cut Manny off in traffic over here. And he doesn't know it's me. He lays on the horn real hard. And, um, you know, maybe um, then he realizes it's me and then he's just all disgusted. And then I see him at church on Sunday and he, he won't look me in the eye. All right? This may or may not have happened. No, it didn't happen. I'm just teasing. Okay. Um, that was me. It's not on Manny to fix this. It's on me to fix it. Now, if you're Manny and you're operating by this sermon, it's on Manny to fix it. But I'm not going to put it on him. I'm going to put this on me. And Manny ought to have the same attitude. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to him and say, hey, man, I'm so sorry I cut you off. That wasn't very kind to me. I'm going to initiate the apology. You see that? That's called grace. You say, but pastor, I didn't do anything to them. And they're being nasty to me. Okay, then number two. Was there a misunderstanding or a misconception? You know, maybe there was a, uh, a perception of wrongdoing. I stand up here. I want you, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I love preaching. You can't tell. But I want you to understand something. I stand up here and I preach to people from over 30 different countries every Sunday. And people that come from other countries, they have a different cultural background and different things offend different people. Different things are important to different people. On top of that, there are people of different colors and cultures that attend this church. What unites all of us? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I stand up here and sometimes I say something that offends somebody. I'm not trying to offend people, but sometimes I do. And you know what? Sometimes people give me a cold shoulder because I've said something that's hurt their feelings, and I don't even know what I said. You know what I've got to do? I've got to go and try to clear that up. And here's what we have to stop doing, church. We have to stop worrying about being right. You know what's more important to me than being right? My relationship with Manny Lee. I would rather take one for the team and us be on the same page than me prove to him that he's wrong and I'm right. So I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, hey man, what's the problem? And me and Manny don't have any problems. All right? I picked him because I don't have any problems with him. Amen? Now the rest of you, no, I'm kidding. But Manny, all right? So, so, you know, what's the problem here? And he, you know, I drag it out of him. You know, you, you did this or you said this. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I didn't say that. But that's not, that, that is totally not what I meant. You know what? What I meant doesn't matter. What matters is that me and him are on the right page. Now it's going to require a little bit of emotional strength on your part. But you look at that person and you say, man, I'm so sorry. I hope, I hope we can patch things up and we can move on. I want you to know I love you. You know what I'm doing? I'm operating out of a, a place of grace. I have a heart that is tender. Instead of trying to be right, I want us to be right. You see, if I value my relationship with Manny and I win and he loses, then our relationship loses. Okay, so... You can't figure out what any misconception or misunderstanding is, and that person is still being unkind in your direction. What do you do? Here's what you do. Number three, understand that people are broken. Understand that people are broken. Angela, how many times have you heard me say to you about someone who is unkind to one of us, they're broken? Almost every week. Almost every week. Yeah, you know what? They're broken. They're broken. 
And I don't mean that in an unkind way. I mean that sin breaks us. Sometimes people mistreat other people, not because they have a problem with you. We're so selfish, aren't we? I can't believe the way he looked at me. Maybe he looked at you that way because he's hurting inside. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Such and such blew right past me in church and didn't say hi. Maybe such and such is carrying a heavy burden and is just preoccupied with that burden. Get past yourself! Quit making it about you all the time! That's not what someone who operates in a place of grace does. They understand that that person who's quiet and reserved or, or in a shell and avoiding has nothing to do with you oftentimes. Oftentimes, they're just struggling to make it through the day. They drug themselves out of bed and they're dragging themselves through life and they're not being kind as they ought to be. But they don't need you to condescend. They need you to meet them where they are and love them. Understand that people are broken. Understand that people are selfish. Understand that people uh, behave in a way sometimes that's mean. You know why? Because they're broken by past hurts or by sin. Number four. Number four. So number one, is the accusation correct? Number two, is there a misunderstanding? Number three, is the person broken? Number four, I pray for the person. I pray for the person and ask God to give me a heart of compassion and pity for their inner struggle. I look at them and I say, Lord, they're not being nice to me, but you know what they need? They need me to pray for them. Lord, I pray you'd bless them today. Lord God, I pray that You'd help them with whatever is hurting on the inside to heal. I pray, God, that You would give me a heart of compassion and pity for them in their inner struggle. And then number five, I do my best to move toward the person and love them around their hurt. Okay, you have a a friend who has cut you off on social media, and then you see him and they can, you know, they just... They won't look at you in the eye. They're, 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 they're being unkind to you. And you think, well, I, you know what? They're going to treat me that way. Well, I'll treat them that way too. Instagram, block. Facebook, block. TikTok, block. You know what? Text message, block. I, I, I'm done. That's not grace. That's law. That's law. You you. Punched me in the metaphorical mouth. I'm punching you back. I'm not turning the other cheek. I'm giving it to you. You know what grace does? Grace says, you hit me here, you can hit me on this one too. I'm still coming at you because I love you. And I'm going to pray for you. And you and I are going to get this thing fixed. Why? Because grace, grace's character is that it has a tough skin, but a tender heart. Oh, White Oak Baptist Church, if I could get each of you in here to understand that and live that, we would be the most mature church in America. You see, when grace comes pouring in from God in your heart, it radically changes your character. Amen. Number two, grace is commitment. Grace is commitment. Let me give you a letter A here. Notice, grace, grace is committed to value life. Value life. What does it mean to value life? Well, we value human life. Every human being, every 
human being, is an image bearer of God and has equal value. It does not matter what color your skin is. It does not matter what country you were born in. It does not matter how you have defrauded your body. It does not matter what your political ideology is. Everyone is an image bearer. Every human being is an image bearer of God and is of equal value. But not only do we value human life, we value marital life. The husband-wife unit is God's plan for procreation. In that unit, life continues to be generated. Parental life. Dads and moms have the right and responsibility to train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so as to prepare them for adulthood, marriage, parenting, and, and, and obedience to God's ultimate plan for them. Aged life. Proverbs 16.31 says, The hoary head or the gray head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. We are to value aged life. We don't uh, uh, take people's lives because they're getting older and they have nothing left to contribute to society. No, we value life all the way to the grave. We fight for life all the way to the grave. How about eternal life? Those who value life value not only the well-being of the body, but more important, the eternal well-being of the soul. Because each person is an image bearer of God. They have an eternal soul that will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. And we value that eternal life and we're committed to cherish that life. Those who abide in God's grace have a commitment to life in every form. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Look down at verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time, um, the, uh, 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 lest at any time the adversary deliver to thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, uh, uh, unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Uh, listen, we're not going through life trying to keep from committing murder. We're going through life trying to maintain peace and relationship in every relationship. Um, you say, Pastor Lejeune, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Is there anything that keeps you from being able to fall asleep? There's one thing. As a pastor and friend and a husband, um, that keeps me up at night. Here it is. When I know that someone has a deep-rooted problem against me, it bothers me so much I can't sleep at night. There have been nights where I'm up till 2, 3, 4 a.m. tossing and turning and praying that God will give me peace in a relationship that's broken. I value relational life so much that when I know someone has a problem with me or I have an unresolved conflict with someone, it keeps me up at night because I want that resolved. There have been many times Angela's woken up in the middle of the night and put her hand on my back as I'm sitting on the edge of my bed praying and she's rubbed my back and said, you've got to give it to the Lord and go to sleep. You just got to give it to the Lord and go to sleep. Why? I value life because I live in the room of grace and I want God's grace to flow through me and on to others. And when, I, when, when I'm doing my best to love on someone and they continue to move away, oh, how it hurts my heart. I don't want to be angry with my brother. I want to show grace for my brother that has a, a wound against me or a wound in their soul. Look at Matthew 5, verse 38. 
Ye have heard that hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Tooth, I say unto you, resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, uh, give him thy cloak also. Let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go, uh, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee. And from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Uh, this is why we turn the other cheek. We value life more than we value our coat. We value life more than we value an injury. We value life more than we value our own personal embarrassment. Grace screams life. Grace screams life. Life in my marriage. Life in my parenting. A life with my friends. Life with the church members. A life everywhere I turn. Grace screams life. And if you live under grace and it's poured all over you, then you value life at every turn. Grace demands that we suffer loss over someone's selfishness in order to restore a broken relationship. Now, let me be very clear. Hear what I'm about to say nice and loud. Grace does not require that you lay down and be walked all over all the time. But grace does require an immense amount of deference toward others who have wronged you. We have a commitment to value life. Grace's commitment, letter B, a commitment to value love. A commitment to value love. Love is realized in many ways and is felt in many different forms. The love between a man and a woman culminates in the act of marriage. And this is to be a lifelong commitment. Look at Matthew 5. Look at verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right eye offend, if the right hand offend thee, Cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Church, lust is the enemy of love. Lust says me first. Love says you first. Love says I want. Lust says I'll give. Or love says I'll give. And when lust works its way into the fabric of your marriage, your marriage is in trouble. To the single men and women here, I just want to say this. Getting married is not the solution to your lust problem. If you have a lust problem before you get married, you'll have a lust problem after you get married. If you have a porn addiction before you get married, getting married and having a sex partner does not make that magically go away. You need to get be pure in mind and pure in heart before you get married so that you can stay pure in mind and pure in heart after you get married. Lust makes its way into a marriage. That marriage is deeply in trouble. Jesus said that we are to value love of a spouse on such a level, there is no room for untoward sexual lust. What should you do if lust has made its way in your marriage? Remember, grace demands a higher standard than the law requires. The law says, hey, as long as you're not having intercourse with another person outside of your marriage, you're good. Grace says, don't even look at that woman walking in the store in front of you, not wearing a whole lot with lust. 
Don't even look. Ladies, don't you glance across the church auditorium and look at another man and say, I wish my husband was like that. Don't even do it. Don't even look that way. Don't think that way. You be thankful with the spouse of your youth. So you say, well, what should I do if I'm wrapped up in lust? Well, you should take the drastic measures Matthew 5 lays out. You should be willing to pluck out your eyes if that's what's causing you to be unfaithful. You should be willing to chop off your hands or feet if they're carrying you into adultery. Now, I'm not here telling people to to pluck their eyes out. Jesus did that. But can I tell you practically what I think this means? You ought to be willing to give up any electronic device that's a temptation. You ought to be willing to cancel any social media account that's a temptation. You ought to be willing to delete phone numbers of people who are a temptation. You ought to be willing to change your phone number if necessary. You ought to be willing to uh, pick up and move jobs or move out of the state or even move to the other side of the world if that's what it takes to keep you from being unfaithful to your spouse. Grace demands that we are committed to our spouses. Look at Matthew 5, look at verse 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a bill, a, a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, uh, I had a conversation with a uh, young man training for ministry this week about revolving somewhere around this passage or this topic. And there are pastors that believe a lot of different uh, things on this. But I'm just going to state those things that are very clear here. Divorce used to be a byword in our culture. And I'm old enough to remember when it was. We picked up a couple to come to church and they were living together. But they didn't want anybody to know they were living together. And so my dad asked uh, the young lady what her name was. And she gave her first and last name. And so for the next year and a half, everybody called him by her last name. And he was afraid to tell anyone that that wasn't his last name because he didn't want everyone to know they were living together and they weren't married. But today, people live together and they're like, okay, how did we get here? Well, it used to be that people knew how to be married. And then people were uh, didn't know how to be married, but they were committed enough to the idea where they wouldn't divorce. And then, about my parents' generation, not my parents, but my parents' generation, divorce became much more commonplace. Yes. And now today, don't even people don't, don't get married. Yes. Yes. I mean, again, I'm being blunt here. The marital act is just that. It's for marriage. Amen. You have a bunch of couples who want to, you know... Kick the, kick the tires of the car before they make the purchase. Amen. That's wrong. Amen. That's wrong. Amen. You say, well, you know, we have to try each other out to know if we're compatible. Let me just say this. If you're compatible emotionally, and you're compatible, compatible spiritually, yes. and you're attracted to them physically, yes. I promise it will all work out physically after you get married. Amen. I promise. Hey, look at me. I promise Amen. it will all work out. Amen. You don't need to kick the tires of the car before you buy it. Amen. I think a lot of couples don't trust each other in marriage because they were misbehaving before marriage. Amen. And if you can show restraint before you get married... And then, sir, you have to take a business trip. Your wife is going to know that you can show restraint while you're married. Divorce is 
Listen, never God's plan. Now, there is an exception. When your spouse has been unfaithfully sexually, you have, you have permission from the Lord to go get a divorce. But under no other terms should you go get a divorce. You say, well, what about an abuse situation? My advice is separate. Separate. And, 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 and then do, do what you can to try to get the abuser uh, to repent and then put it back together. These are heavy topics. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, don't run out, uh, don't run out and look for a bill of divorcement at the first sign of trouble. No, you double down and you work hard. You say, Pastor, marriage is hard. Trust me, I get that marriage is hard. I've been married for 16 years. There was a time in my marriage with Angela where we hit a rough patch and uh, we were both equally miserable in our marriage. You say, well, how miserable were the two of you? Uh, miserable enough where I did not want to live any longer. I remember her and I went and sat in a counselor's office, a professional counselor. And I was so low. I was lower than low. And Angela was right there with me. All right? And the, the counselor looked at me and said, do you want a divorce? And I couldn't even look him in the eye. With tears running down my cheeks. I, looking, down, looking down at the floor, I said to him, I don't want a divorce. I want to die. And he said, he said, are you suicidal? I said, no, I'm not suicidal. But if you have a gun in, you, in, in that drawer and you pull it out and aim it at my head, I'm not going to run. Amen. You say, you were that miserable? We were both that miserable. But in that valley of our marriage, I looked at her and said, I said till death do us part, I'm not going anywhere I will be by your side until death does us part, even if it means feeling this way for the rest of my life. And we need some people in here who are committed to, to love. They're committed to loving their spouse until death do us part. I stood on that wedding platform and I was somewhat naive when I said it, but as a 23-year-old man, I looked that young lady in the eyes and I said, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Praise God, we've seen much better days and live in better days today. Amen. Love wins the day if you stay the course. Amen. Matthew 5.33, look there with me. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. And I believe this passage is tied back to the topic of marriage. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thy oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, neither by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by His head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. This was written before uh, hair dye. Okay? 37. But, but let your conversation be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And God demands a commitment to loving others. I said, I will marry you till death do us part. I'm not going to let my yay be a nay. And I'm not going to let my nay be a yay. No, I'm going to, I'm going to swear to my own hurt. I'm going to give my word to my own hurt. And uh, your yeses should mean yes. Your noes should mean no. And people should be able to count on you to love them by being honest with your speech. God's character, number two, or rather Grace's character, Grace's commitment, number three. Lastly, let's look at Grace's channel. Grace's channel. Letter A, we are to channel Grace on, letter A, your family. You are to channel Grace on your family. Look back with me at Matthew 5. 
Look at verse number 22, Matthew 5:22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with who? With his brother. With his brother. You're not to be angry with your brother. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's obviously talking about your biological brother, right? It's talking about your biological brother, but it's also talking about your spiritual brother. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, and and your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you, would you raise your hand? Raise your hand if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. You know what that means? If your hand's up, that means I'm your brother. And you're my brother or sister. We're family. You know what family does? They show grace to each other. They love each other. They don't stay angry at each other. In fact, they shouldn't even get angry at each other. Amen? How about verse 27? You have heard that hath been said of, of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know what? Someone who's married has to be involved in that uh, sexual relationship for it to be adultery. Let me say, if you're not married here, don't you ever get in bed with someone who is married. You're participating in that adultery. But if you're married, boy, you better be faithful to the Lord. I thank God that in the seven years I've pastored this church, I've not yet dealt with a full-blown case of adultery as pastor. I praise God for that. And I hope that it stays that way until Jesus comes back or I die one day. Let's be faithful to each other. Those living by the New Testament covenant are not channeling anger and lust onto their family. They're to channel grace and peace. I want, I want my family to look at me and say, husband and dad is a man who walks in grace. When we do wrong, he's firm about wrongdoing, but he's gracious. And I want the people who attend this church and look at me and call me pastor to say, Pastor Lejeune is a man who walks in grace. He's got a backbone. He's got a spine. He doesn't let people run him over. But when people do wrong, he's right by their side to show them the grace of God. Why? Because you all are my family. Can that be said about you? By the way, I've got room to improve. But can that be said about you? Or are you reactionary? You in people's face. You telling people how it is when they do wrong. Oh, we ought to show grace to those who wrong us. Grace should flow from us on others. Let her be. We not only channel grace on our family, we channel grace on our foes. Look with me at Matthew 5, verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Look at 45. I want you to see 45 here. Look at this. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, turn over to Romans 5. I've had you in Matthew 5 the whole sermon. But I want you to look at one other passage with me. Please, please, please. Everybody turn there. Romans chapter 5. I want you to turn over there. Now, when you show grace to someone who is nasty your direction, when you show grace to someone who is your enemy, you know what that does? That identifies you as a child of God. If I were to take April and Angela and put them side by side, uh, you look at April and say, she looks a lot like 
her mother, she resembles her mother. If you were to, uh, watch, uh, you were to be a fly on the wall watching me and Matthew watch a football game this afternoon, you'd say they respond a lot of the same ways. They act a lot of the same way. He resembles his father and his behavior and in his character. And you know what? People ought to look at you and say, hey, look at them showing grace to those that mistreat them. That reminds me of their father in heaven. Look at Romans 5, look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There was a day. There was a day when God looked down from heaven at me and you. And He saw us as His enemies. The language we used offended Him. The lifestyle we lived offended Him. The lies we told offended Him. And instead of pushing us away, He sent Jesus down to this earth to die for His enemies. He extended grace when we deserved punishment. And when people wrong you, and you love them, and you forgive them, and you move toward them, people look at you and say, no, that is the behavior of their Father in heaven. Do you have someone on this earth who you would say is your enemy? Maybe there's someone on this earth, they would say that you are their enemy. It's time to channel God's grace all over them. You know what a channel does? He hooks up to the source and lets it flow right through them. It's not your grace. It's His grace. You spend time in His presence, and you spend time in that grace, and it comes flowing down on others. Jesus said, when you pray, say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. May we show grace to others. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Christian, are you living under the law and your behavior... Or are you living under grace? Are you more concerned about holding people to some rigid standard of behavior? Or are you more concerned about loving others? Hey, let's hold ourselves to a level of grace character. When it comes to others, let's love them right where they are. It's not my place to change people. It's not your place to change people. That's God's place. How many here this morning would say, Pastor Lejeune, I've experienced God's great grace and salvation. If I were to die today, I know for sure that I'd spend eternity in heaven. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? I know I'm going to heaven. I've given my heart to Christ and salvation. I believe that's either every hand or almost every hand. You can put them down. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor, I don't know if I were to die where I would go. Would you please pray for me?
If that's you, I don't, I don't want to embarrass you. That's why everyone's heads bowed and eyes are closed. I won't call your name. I won't single you out. But I sure would like to pray for you. If you're here today and you do not know where you would spend eternity if you died on your way home from church this morning, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? I do not know. Would you please pray for me? Is there one? I don't see any hands. I sure hope that means everyone here is a believer of Christ. How many of you here this morning say, Pastor Lejeune, God has put His finger on an area in my life from the preaching this morning. I I have a mentality shift that needs to take place. I need God's grace to win the day in my heart and both on how I live and how I treat others. Here's my hand, Pastor. Would you please pray for me? Help me to operate out of the room of grace. How many here today would say, Pastor, I'm going through some hardships in my life that are very heavy. Would you pray for me, please? Would you hold your hands up? I'm going through some hardships. Hold them up. I want to see each hand. I'm taking a moment to just try to remember whose hand is up. I'm going to pray for you this week. I'm going to ask God to help you through this hardship. Let's stand to our feet, church. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.